there's probably no one here that remembers, but uh, Solomon said in Ecclesiastes that the end of a matter is better than the beginning. And how many here remember starting the Gospel of John in this church, in this study? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, we're finishing John's Gospel this morning. So we're in chapter 21, yeah. The end of a matter is better than the beginning. Guys, I, I had to look this up because I couldn't remember either. In uh, November of 2000, we started in the Upper Room Discourse in John's Gospel. And obviously there's some breaks in between this last seven years, but we then went to John 1 in December of 2003. That took us up through the end of chapter 12. And then in March, we went back into John 18. So it's been the best part of seven years that we've worked our way through John's Gospel off and on. So it is the end of a matter. By the way, John's one of my favorite uh, books. You know, when you teach, you get to teach what you want. So I've taught through one of my favorite books of the Bible, and I've certainly enjoyed it. I hope the church has too. In introducing uh, our last text this morning, this may sound like an odd segue, but I, I think you'll see it works. If you come to our house, uh, you'll see we have a couple of pets. They're two dogs, Molly's an Airedale mix. She's 12 years old, and Jordy's a three-year-old Airedale puppy. And we have a lot of fun with them, and normally life's good. But one of the dynamics that develops when you have more than one pet, in our case, these two dogs, is this. When Kathy gets out the liver treats, to train Jordy, you know, put her through her paces, make her an obedient, nice puppy to be around all this. Molly hears that sound, and Molly knows that this means treats. Treats are out. So she hears the little thing opening. She hears sit, shake, you know, lay. So she comes running. Because if Jordy's going to get a treat, a liver treat, she's bound to get one too. And if Jordy's laying quietly in the library and Molly's lapping up a drink of water, you know what Jordy has to do too. She's got to run over and stick her head in that bowl too because she's not going to miss out on what Molly's got going. In both cases, either dog could be laying there doing just fine, life's fine, life's good. But if the other dog gets something that they don't, life as we know it is over. They've got to come running. They've got to get in on what the other pooch is getting. And you've probably seen kids that play like this. Have you seen kids playing before where life is fine, life's good, we're playing, creative juices are flowing, and then one child gets a toy out that the other one doesn't have, and then suddenly life for the child without that other new toy is over. It's insufferable. We can't go on with this the way it is. Life's fine at one moment, it's not the next, because someone else got something that I don't have. Have you guys ever experienced this as adults? Yeah. You know, we get these emotional lurches and there's this, there's a sense generally, I think, of insecurity if someone you know gets something you wanted and you don't. Or conversely, if you get something you didn't want that others are free of. And you know, the response is you start looking around to see what other people got or didn't get to see if your life's okay or not. And you judge the quality of your life by what those around you get, liver treats or otherwise. That's the introduction of the passage we're in, which sounds strange, but you'll see where we're going with this in just a minute. We're in John 21. We'll jump in at verse 18. But if you remember the setting, Jesus is with the disciples up at the Sea of Galilee. And this is after the resurrection, and he's met the best part of the group of disciples. Up there they were fishing. They didn't catch anything. 
Jesus provides a miraculous catch. They come back on shore. He feeds them breakfast. Chapter 21, he restored Peter. He asked him three times, do you love me? Peter says three times, yeah. Peter's restored to Jesus' fellowship, and the other disciples know Peter's good to go again. So the conversation we have here is directly following that, starting at verse 18. Jesus continues and says, Truly, truly, or we could say, Count on it, Pete. I say to you, when you were younger, you used to gird yourself and walk wherever you wished. But when you grow old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will gird you and bring you where you do not wish to go. Now this he said, signifying by what kind of death he, Peter, would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, Follow me. Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, the one who had leaned back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing him, says to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, If I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? You follow me. Therefore this saying went out among the brethren that the disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but only, if I want him to remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. There are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And just, we assume by way of hyperbola here, John is saying, I could write tons and tons more for you about what Jesus said or did, but you remember in chapter 20 he said, I've chosen these things so that you can believe in Jesus and believing have life in his name. Now back to our story here. At verse 18, Jesus has just intimated Peter's death and death by crucifixion. He says, you'll stretch out your hands and other people will take you where you don't want to go. And by the way, back in John 13, 36, if you remember when Pete pledges his loyalty and says, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go, Jesus says, where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. And we assume this is another reference to not just death or not just following Jesus to heaven, but to crucifixion. And the early church said Peter was crucified. So here he's fed breakfast and he's been restored to fellowship. And then Jesus kind of mentions how he's going to die. Uh, Imagine yourself at breakfast and somebody tells you you're going to be crucified. (laughs) You know, that'd be a conversation stopper, wouldn't it? (laughs) Let me tell you how you're going to die. This is kind of the stuff of movies. If someone said, I know how you're going to die, where, when, you know, you might think, I don't want to know. Or I want to know so I can live in light of that. But it'd be tough. But Peter's just had this bomb dropped on him. You're going to follow me, Pete, in death. You're going to be crucified. That's the way your life ends then apparently jesus takes peter they get up on the beach away from the other guys and they're walking to have this conversation this private chat after jesus has dropped the bombshell now you can imagine if you're peter i'm going to die i'm going to be crucified the thoughts would be rolling in your mind you're walking along with jesus there'd probably be lots of things you might want to ask him when does it happen how long do i have Will I, will I stay faithful to the end? Will, will I be up to the task when it comes, you know? But what does Peter ask him? You know, you and I are with Jesus. We're walking along. This is how you're going to die, Mike. Man, 
What would I ask him? What's Peter ask him? He says, uh, Lord, what about this man? <laughs> now, I'm reading some of this in, but I think based on Jesus' reply, I think it's fair to read in what we're, what we're getting out of this passage. He's walking with Jesus. Pete, you're going to be crucified. And, and Pete says, uh, what about him? I assume Pete's saying, what kind of death does he get? Does he get to be crucified like I get to be crucified? You know, does he get the liver treats? Do I get the liver treats? I think that's what this is about. Peter, you're going to be crucified. Here's John tagging along behind. What's he get? Does his, his life end in, pain, in a painful death? You guys remember, we're laughing, but crucifixion was the most agonizing, shameful way you could die in the Roman world. And so Jesus tells Pete, you're going to follow me in the hardest way of dying you can think of. That's where you're headed. So I'm joking now, but Peter's thought is, well, what about him? What's his end look like? Does he get to stick around for a long time or does he get to be crucified? Does he get to share my glory in death? You know, does he get to be crucified too? Whatever you think of in, in your mind, whatever you tie this to, sometimes we say phrases like the grass is always greener, meaning it always looks better someplace else. Or you could, we could call this envy. We could call it insecurity. We could talk, call it a number of things. But you know, basically all of us struggle with this. And there's this element in our life in which we gauge or we weigh the success or the value of our life or how fairly God is treating us by looking around at the lives of others to see if our life measures up with theirs. Are they getting something I want and I don't get? Or conversely, am I getting something I don't want, i.e. crucifixion, that they get to skate free of. We tend to look around and we weigh our life and we weigh God's fairness based on what He's doing, not just in our life, but the comparison between our life and the lives of those around us. Think of this for just a minute, though. John is uniquely, you know, if you have circles of relationships and proximity and closeness, which all of us do, you know, with the disciples you've got, just say, 120, 70, 30, I think, 12, 3, and 1. John is the one. You know, put yourself in John's shoes. Uh, we don't know, and he doesn't know here, I assume, but Pete's going to die relatively shortly. I mean, he's probably going to have 20 or 30 years, I think, and that's going to be it. But John lives on into the 90s at least, probably 30 years longer than Peter. Now, if you're John and you hear that Peter gets to go out in glory, so to speak, crucified, maybe John's thinking this. I'm ready to go home and be with the Lord now, which is what Paul said in Philippians 1.23. His view was, if I had a choice to make, I'd die now so I could go to heaven and be with Christ because that's better than anything on the earth. Pete's looking back at John and saying, what does he get compared to the way I'm going out? Maybe John's looking at Peter thinking, I'd love to check out early. Crucifixion, not a problem. I'll go that route too. Because if I could choose, I'd rather go to heaven anyway. We don't know, and that's not what this is about. But Peter, I assume, envies John or is tempted to envy John. John might be turning around feeling exactly the same way towards Peter. But there's this temptation to compare our lives to justify God's action. He's fair, he's not fair to me, based on looking at the lives of others and making that comparison. 
If God gives me four children, which he did, and he gives Kent 11, does he love Kent more than me? Or does he love Kent less than me? (laughs) Depending on the day. Yeah, think about that. Uh, if, If God gives one of us health throughout your lifetime and you die at this ripe old age, and I die of cancer, and we're both Christians, does God love me less than you? You don't get the same thing. Does he love one of us more or less than the other? Or think of this. If you're born a Christian, or if you're born again a Christian in the West, and you've got prosperity, frankly, life pretty easy. You might think it's hard at times, but try living in another part of the world. Uh, You get all the good stuff life has to offer. Does God love you more than persecuted Christians in Africa and the Middle East and the Far East? You see where this is going. If he, if he does, then you can weigh God's love for you based on how much stuff you get in this life. If that's not God's criteria, though, it's the wrong criteria for you and I to use in deciding if God's doing right by us or not. But it's the hole, frankly, that most of us fall into, I'd say just about every day, am I getting the good things I want and avoiding the bad things I don't want compared to someone else next to me? I also found it interesting that this comes up at the end of a book, John's Gospel. The whole theme of John's Gospel is this is how to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is how to get saved out of your sinful condition and come into a place of life. And here at the end of John's Gospel, you see Peter expressing the same kind of temptation that Eve did in the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3 that led to sin and death and separation in the first place. And you remember there, the same theme was, Eve, gosh, you know, although God said everything in the garden was good, and although your life is good, everything you know is good, it's only good, look at that tree over there. You know, really, God doesn't love you the way He should, because if He did, He wouldn't withhold that fruit on that tree. God's really ripping you off, Eve. And you should take a step up, and you should take that fruit, because you'll get what's coming to you, and life will be better, you'll be better etc., etc. And of course, once she believes God's ripping her off, she's got to have the fruit, and that's where sin and death and separation comes in. And that's the same kind of trap Peter's in. It's the same kind of trap you and I are in. As silly as it sounds, you know, you guys often look like my dogs, which means the liver treat thing gets shaken, and we come looking because we think we're going to be ripped off. God's going to give someone else something that we want. Or, or, we're going to get something we don't want that we wish somebody else could take for us, crucifixion or anything else. This uh, choice that you and I face when God says to Peter, this is what you get, and God says to John, this is what you get, or to Bob or any of us, whatever this looks like, the choice we face when this temptation comes up to be content with what God gives us in our life or withholds in our life, It is one of the greatest challenges in this life you'll have. And it's also one of the most important means of your experiencing joy and peace in this time on the earth. One of the greatest challenges you'll ever have. And also one of the greatest means of you enjoying peace and joy in this life you have on the earth. And you guys, you don't have to think long 
about people you know, you know, we'd say something like, they're no better looking than me. They're no smarter than me. They're no better than me, but they live in that big house on the hill and I live in my little four-wall shack. You know how that goes. And, and it creates this dynamic where you're chewed up from within with envy and bitterness and doubt and anxiety. So when the temptation comes up, it's a great challenge on one hand to say no to it, but it's also the way you get peace and joy in this life. I'm convinced that there's probably no greater test of our faith and no greater evidence of our trust in God than to be able to say to God, no matter what someone else around us is getting or not getting, God, I trust you, you do all things well. Probably no greater test of our faith, no greater demonstration of our trust in God than how we respond when someone we know gets something we want and we don't, or when we get the negative thing that we don't want and others are free of. When I was a young Christian, Kathy and I were married, we, were, we, had two, we didn't have two nickels. We gave away a puppy one time. We couldn't afford to feed the puppy. You know, we had no money. We were still pretty happy, but we had no money. And I read passages like Psalm 73, and I was consoled by them. You know Psalm 73? where it's about the righteous watches the wicked gain wealth and health and this good quality life, and the righteous is envious. But then the psalm says, hey, don't worry about them because, gosh, you know, they lose it all in the end, and then it's meaningless. But the righteous have this future life of joy, this expectation of things to come. So as a young Christian without two nickels thinking about this, okay, Lord, I, I, I get it. I'm good to go. And then you know what happened? I started looking around me in the church at other Christians and I realized, well, but Lord, they've got more money than I have. They're not the unrighteous. They're the righteous like me. <laughs> they're going to heaven. They've got heaven to come and you gave them more money than me. You gave them more status, more success, etc. And I fell into the whole, the temptation all over again because now it's not those dirty outsiders. Now it's the people just like me who are in God's family. And I scratch my head. How do I deal with this? Lord, what's with this? Doesn't seem very fair. Doesn't seem very fair. What do you do with the thoughts? How do you deal with the fact that God's going to allow us to face difficulties in life that others are spared? And how do you think and respond to life when God gives other things to other people that you're dying for and you don't get? And just a few things. Marriage, children, or by the way, bad marriage you wish you could get out of. Children that are heartaches, want kids, then you get them, then they're heartaches. Wealth, gives other people wealth, you, and you don't, or health, or social status, or business success. What do you deal with the thoughts that come up when others are getting the things you want and don't have, or you're getting the things you don't want and others are free of? And let me suggest a way of looking at this, and it's twofold. The first is this, God, as he acts in your life and mine, he'll do at least two things. He does lots of other things, but the things that are kind of the, the foundation that you can't get away from, the things that help me as I grapple with these challenges or temptations are these twofold things. God's always doing this. If he's not doing anything more than this, he's at least doing this. God is glorifying himself in your life and mine. And that's from verse 19. John says, it's almost an editorial, 
But he says, Jesus was indicating to Peter how Peter would glorify God. Peter's crucifixion glorified God. In your life and mine, whatever's going on, God is glorifying himself. And the second thing is this, God is always blessing you, whether it feels like it or not. And we'll develop both of these briefly. First, God's glorifying himself in and through your life. This comes down to something that we looked at not all that long ago about God's character when we looked at theology proper. And one of the, the attributes of God, we said, was God's perfection. God is perfect. He can't do anything that's less than perfect. So whatever God causes or allows in your life and mine reflects his perfection, can't be anything less, and therefore his glory. So even if it doesn't look like it at the time to you, God is using everything that comes into your life or that you don't have in your life and he's using it to glorify himself because it displays, whether you see it now or not, it displays his glory because it displays his perfection. So a person following Christ in martyrdom glorifies God. And a person following Christ and living to a ripe old age glorifies God. A person following Christ in marriage and parenting glorifies God. And a person who lives out their whole life as a single glorifies God. Whatever station or status in life we have, whether it's in wealth or poverty, whether it's in times of tragedy or peace, a life given to following Christ glorifies God. And God glorifies himself in every life. You know, if something's true, if it's an absolute, it's absolutely true all the time. So this is true of Christians in Darfur, Africa. It's true of persecuted Christians in China today. It's true of all people all the time. God glorifies himself in our lives, whether it looks like it to us at the time or not. In the end, we'll see the perfection of God's actions, what he's given and what he's withheld in eternity. The second thing is this, which I'm importing. God's glory always means your good as his child, as one who's entrusted yourself to his care, if not on this earth, then in eternity. And let me just mention Romans 8 briefly. It's probably the passage most people could think of related to this. But in Romans 8, 28, Paul, who suffered like you and I never will on this earth, think about the guy who's reading, writing this. He's in prison multiple times. He's beaten. He's whipped. He's shipwrecked. He goes on starving bouts. He's persecuted from within the church and from without. He's the guy that writes, God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul says God works everything to our good. Many times, maybe most times, that's not in this lifetime on this earth, necessarily. The good may be something that we don't see until we step into eternity. He says in verse 32 in that same passage, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? This sounds a little bit like John 3.16. God so loved the world, he gave up his own son. The thought goes something like this. I can never doubt God's motive towards me as far as his goodness or his love, because he gave Christ for me. So Paul says, if he gave you Jesus, what else would he withhold from you? Or why would he withhold something good from you or for you if he gave you that which matters most to him? If he gave Christ for you, he's willing to give you anything. 
the demonstration of God's motive to you to bless you and to love you is Christ's sacrifice for your sake and for mine. You can't get around this. I don't care what happens in your life. You can't get around this. God gave Christ for you. There's nothing he's holding back from you that would actually be to your good. In his perfect knowledge, in his perfect will, you're not missing anything that would actually be to your good because God's demonstrated his motive to bless you by giving you the ultimate gift, the gift above ever asking his own son. So it's never a problem that God doesn't love you enough. It's never a problem that God loves you less than someone else. He's equally given Christ for all of us. When God allows difficulties, trials, tragedies in our life, it is in love. It can't be anything else. And it at least does this. The good in this life that it does is at least this. It molds us more fully into Christ's image. And it also allows God to reward us more fully or more richly in eternity. You know, for us, you may look at Christians who are persecuted in other parts of the world and feel sorry for them. And sometimes that might be appropriate. We can pray for them. We're, we're, uh, we're told to in Hebrews, remember those in prison, as in, in prison with them yourselves, etc. Those are Christians he's talking about. But you know, on the flip side, those people who suffer more for Christ's name, guess what? They have honor or reward in heaven that you and I who suffered less won't have. God isn't unfair, ultimately. The suffering that they share for Christ's sake will be repaid to them in glory in the reward God heaps on them in eternity. So just like Peter and John on the beach, I might look at the Chinese, the persecuted house church, and feel sorry for them. They might look at me and feel sorry for me because I don't get the reward for persecution that they get. It could go either way. God's demonstrated His love. Nothing holds Him back from blessing us. What God gives you and what God withholds with you is meant to glorify God and to be used ultimately for your blessing. And God uses the events and the issues in every life and circumstance to form us into Christ's image and then prepare us to share His glory. That's what He's doing. If He's not doing anything else, whatever He gives you, whatever He withholds, He's at least doing those two things. Remember this as these temptations come up in this process of choosing to be content, that by the way we normally measure God isn't fair, but he's good. God isn't fair by our standard, but he's good. Remember the parable Jesus tells about the rich landowner and he's going to leave, so three servants, he calls them all in. What does he do? He gives them three different amounts to invest on his behalf. What's the deal with that? If he was fair, he'd give them all the same amount, right? But he's not fair, but he's good. And in your life and mine, God will give you some things that he won't give me. And he'll give you some burdens to bear that I won't have to bear. And I'd say again, God isn't fair, but he's good. And it's the but he's good part that you've got to focus on or you get lost in the disparity between your life and someone else's. Or even other people's lives. You might look at a situation and say, it's not fair what that Christian suffered in Iran or Iraq or whatever. God isn't fair, but he's good. In the end, the question you and I need to ask, if we're with Peter or Jesus walking along the beach and Jesus says, this is what I'm giving you, the question to ask is not, 
What about them? It's not, well, do they get to go out the same way? Do they get to share the same lovely burden I get, Lord? Or anything like that. The question to ask is, God, how do you want to glorify yourself in my life? How do I cooperate with what you're doing in the world? That's the question. How do you want to glorify yourself? How can I actively be a part of doing that? What does this look like? Jesus says in verse 22, when Peter says, what about John? Jesus says, what is that to you? Don't worry about it, Pete. You follow me. You don't worry about John. You follow me. You know, I find this funny too. Uh, Peter has just been, in fact, the whole chapter 21 is all about Peter. It's all about Peter. And here after he's been restored, Jesus calls him on this private chat on the beach away from the rest of the disciples. And this is the second time post-resurrection Jesus has spent time with Peter alone all by himself. Luke 24 told us Jesus appeared to Pete by himself. So here's Peter getting this quality time with Jesus all by himself. The other guys are back there. And where's Pete looking? He's looking behind him. This is hilarious. He's looking behind him at John. And think of this. John wasn't invited. It's Jesus walking with Peter. John wasn't invited. But you know what? He just wants to be wherever Christ is. So where's he looking? Wherever Jesus went, that's where John was going. Pete gets a special time with Jesus. And you know what he's doing? He's wasting it. Because he's worried about John. And what does John get? And is it fair, Lord? John doesn't care. He just wants to be wherever Christ is. So he's looking at Jesus and he's tagging along in a conversation he's not invited to. Pete's wasting the time Christ meant to spend with him. And John, all John wants to do is be with Jesus. Jesus says the answer to this temptation that we have is, what's that to you? What's it to you what I do with them? You follow me. When you get that temptation to envy what your neighbor gets or to lament the burden you're carrying that no one else is carrying, forget everybody else and refix your gaze on Christ and follow him. That's what Jesus told Peter to do. Don't worry about John. You follow me. That's the answer. You follow me. I was struck as I was reading the end of John and studying for this. I was kind of disappointed. I, I felt kind of let down because I thought, you got this glorious gospel and you end on this crazy note about Pete. What's with that? And I got to thinking about it, you know, compared, say, with uh, Matthew's gospel. You know, at the end of Matthew, and it's the gospel in which Jesus has presented as the king, building his kingdom, and so Matthew goes out with a bang, so to that chapter 28, the end of Matthew's gospel, what does he say? Jesus says to Pete and company, go and make disciples. Go, you're under my commission, go and make disciples. And I got to thinking about that in light of John, and you know what I think's happened at the end of John? Jesus is getting ready to go again, and he says to Pete and company, be my disciple. Don't worry about going. That's Matthew. That's good. You're to be my disciple. You're to be my follower. And this makes sense. 
In John's gospel, you remember all throughout, all John wants us to do is get us introduced to Jesus so we can have life. That's what it's about. The whole thing's about this is Jesus. This is who he said he was. This is what he did. You can believe in him. You can trust him. And trusting him, you'll have life in his name. And it ends on the note that if you want to enjoy that life Christ gives you, you've got to keep following. You've got to keep being the disciple. You can't worry about what others are getting or not getting, where they're going. To enjoy this life Jesus gives you, John 10, the good shepherd, the abundant life, you've got to fix your eyes on him and follow him. Matthew, make disciples. John says, be the disciple. Be the follower. In winding down, let me read you uh, just a few lines out of the poem, The Hound of Heaven uh, by Francis Thompson. This is, by the way, my paraphrased version of just a few lines near the end of the poem. If you've never read this poem, it's a great poem, and it's really rich symbolism, rich imagery. And in this poem, the hound of heaven is God. And God is chasing down this person who's trying to escape him. And near the end of the poem, God catches up with them. They've tried to hide in one place and another. God catches up with them and God says this to them. All which I took from you, I did but take, not for your harms, but just that you might seek it in my arms. All which your child's mistake fancies lost, I have stored for you at home. Rise, clasp my hand, and come. The whole poem is the guy fleeing from God and looking for life in one venue or another. And at the end, God corners him and says, you don't understand. All those things that you thought were to your detriment, they're all for your good. And all those things you thought you lost, I've stored them up at home. They're yours. You've got them. So you just take my hand and come with me. In fact, the poem has this great refrain, this great thought. All things that betray me, God says, betray you. All those things that you thought that I withheld that you should have had, nope, if I would have given them to you, they would have been to your harm, not to your good. It's a great thought. John tells us that if we're spiritually dead but looking for life, we find it when we entrust ourselves to Jesus' care. And then, as his disciples, we continue to enjoy the benefit of that life in this lifetime by fixing our eyes on Christ and following him. So that whether God has crucifixion and a short stay or a long life or anything in between for you and I, he has ordained that your life and mine will glorify himself and it will work out in the end to your good and to mine. You know, I can live with that. So the next time you're tempted to think, God, you're not fair, you can remind yourself, but you're good. And listen to Jesus' words, What's that to you, what God's doing in someone else's unique life? You follow me. Fix your eyes. You follow me. Let's pray. Lord, we are so easily led astray by our own desires, by the corruption of our own hearts. Lord, we look at a God who cannot lie, who cannot sin, who cannot act in less than perfection, and we call into judgment your acts by what you give or what you withhold. Father, help us to remember that if you gave us Christ, and you did, we can entrust ourselves for every good thing we've ever wanted, Lord, or every difficulty we've ever hoped to avoid. 
And Lord, whatever you cause or allow in the lives of any one of us, help us to do what you told Peter to do, to fix our eyes on you and to follow. And Father, in doing so, I pray that your spirit gives us the joy and the peace that we are meant to have as your disciples, as those who have life in your name. Lord, thanks that you've revealed yourself in John's gospel as the good shepherd who's come to give us life and life abundantly. Help us not to be taken in by these temptations, but to entrust ourselves boldly and fully, Lord, into your good care. In Jesus' name, amen.